Well, good morning, friends. It is good to be with you this morning, and team, thank you so much for that. I didn't realize they were going to do a little slideshow. You all have let me do some crazy stuff on stage. Uh, well, as, as Craig mentioned, uh, I feel like God has just really laid a teaching on my heart, and uh, it's from my, my favorite Old Testament book of the Bible, which is from the book of Exodus. And, you know, every time we gather together on a Sunday, uh, we don't gather for a person. We, we, we gather for God. We gather to hear a word from the living God of the universe. And I feel like, for me, which my passion is teaching, that, um, that, that the greatest way we can spend our time this morning is just digging into a word that God has given to me that I believe God wants to say to all of us. So I'd like to invite you kind of one last time as the teaching pastor to a passage in the Bible. So come with me to Exodus chapter 3. And our fine ushers are coming down the aisles right now. If you need a copy of Scripture to follow along, just throw your hand up and they would love to get you a copy of Scripture. And as you are finding uh, Exodus 3, a number of you have been asking me, over the last several weeks, how can we keep up with what God is doing in your life? As we, if we just want to know what is God doing, how is this going to turn out because we still don't know exactly why we're going to Nashville. There's nothing laid out. We don't, we don't have anything figured out yet. Um, the best way to keep up to speed with whatever our story looks like is just on my website, which is just walkingthetext.com. And there is at the very bottom of the front page is just an email address that you can just toss in. And then everything I do, I'll just send out through an email blast. Now, I've got social media icons if you want to follow on social media. And everything on this site, I've got the trips. I'm going to continue to do the trips and any information around that. If that's something that you've been wanting to do for a while, but... It hasn't been the right timing yet. That's where you're going to find out more about the trips. The teaching section, every single teaching I've ever done at Central is right here in this spot. It's there in video, audio download, a summary statement of the teaching as well. And everything else that I'm going to do is going to be through there. In fact, one of the things that I'm going to be announcing in the next week or two is a conference on biblical context. To uh, our knowledge, it's the first time in the United States a conference has been set aside to be done just on biblical context. It's two and a half days. We're going to take the first 500 people to do this, and uh, it's going to be here in West Michigan. It's going to be next June. I've partnered with a group out of D.C. We're calling this the Institute for Biblical Context, a two and a half day here in West Michigan. So if you want to learn about all that information, just put your email address, and then everything will get sent out that way. All righty, Exodus chapter 3. This is a story that many of you have no doubt heard before. Uh, but I hope, as always, that we can bring another aspect of the story that will bring it to a, a little bit of, of a different understanding or just another way of, of learning in this particular passage. So, Exodus chapter 3, here we go. This is a story of Moses. Verse 1 says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And Moses said, here I am. So we've got this story where Moses is leading a flock and it says he comes to the far side of the wilderness to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now Horeb in the text is synonymous with Mount Sinai. And there are lots of candidates for what's the actual Mount Sinai from the Bible. But the two most prevalent candidates are in the southern part of Mount Sinai and they're really close to one another, just a few miles apart. So probably somewhere in the southern part of Mount Sinai, this is where Moses is leading his flock. Now this is what that area looks like. It's a very rocky, rugged terrain. And Moses is a shepherd. He is leading a flock in this area. And all of a sudden, he sees that a bush is on fire. Now, there is lots of discussion around what kind of bush this is, what is going on here. And some will argue and contend that this wouldn't have been too, of, too strange of a sight for Moses because there are some bushes in the Sinai Desert that secrete an oil and some that actually emit a gas that when the temperature is just right, it combusts, it can burst into flames. And so what some people say is that this is probably something Moses has seen before. It's not something you see every day or every month, but this wouldn't have been like the first time that he has seen this. What's interesting is that Moses goes over to the burning bush not because it's burning per se, but because as the text tells us, it's not burning up. He is noticing that it's not burning up. Now, take a normal campfire that we do in our backyards. How long do you have to stare at a log before you know that it's actually burning up? A stick just doesn't burn up. A log just doesn't burn up right away. Now we know if it's burning, it's burning up because we just know that's how it is. But some will argue and contend that the miracle here isn't so much that God shows up to Moses in a burning bush, which it is. It's that Moses paid attention long enough to the miracle that was unfolding in his midst. That to see a, a, a log not burning up, you're probably not talking two or three seconds. You're probably talking two, three, four minutes. And because of this, Moses is drawn to it. And he, in the desert, leading these sheep and goats, goes walking over to the bush. And then it says again, notice with me, it says, verse four, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now what's odd about what we just read there? Anybody pick up on that at all? God says, Moses, Moses. This isn't how we normally talk. Like I see Steve up here in the second row. If I want to get Steve's attention, I generally go, you know, hey, Steve. I don't go, hey, Steve, Steve. Now, kids do that, right? Mom, 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 mom. Right, but as adults... If we want to address someone, we call their name once. If we call their name out a second time, it's because we don't think they heard us. But in this moment, Moses has already turned his attention to the burning bush. He is enamored with what's going on because it's on fire, but it's not burning up. I think Moses is paying full attention to the bush, and yet God still goes, Moses, Moses. Now, this is really fascinating. Because when you look at the entire scriptures, the 66 books that make up the Bible, 
A name being called out twice happens only seven times. It happens four times in the Older Testament, and get this, in all four instances, it is God who is doing it. In the New Testament, it happens three times, and in all three instances, Jesus does it. And when you take all seven of these instances into consideration, you begin to recognize that when a name is called twice, it is a direct divine call. Remember, four times God does it in the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus does it three times in the New Testament. It is a divine call. It is an epic moment in the life of the individual. It's like from this point forward, everything changes. You can say it this way, that when a name is called twice in the scriptures, it always entails a radical change of thought, behavior, and or calling, which we would say occupation. That something significant is going to change in the life of the individual. God is going to call them to a new path. And this is precisely what God is doing in this moment with Moses. He is calling him to a new path. And the text already gives us a heads up by God just repeating his name twice. Now, in order to understand what path God is calling Moses to, we need to first understand what path is God calling Moses from. Now, check this out. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 34, the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. We read this in verse 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. So Moses dies at 120 years of age. Check this out from Exodus 7 verse 7. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron, which is his brother, 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So after God calls Moses here at the burning bush, they immediately go to Pharaoh. So we know that this instance takes place when Moses is 80 years old. And then Stephen, Stephen's speech in Acts 7, lays out this pattern in Moses' life. I'm going to show you one of them, but the rest of these other two that we just looked at are also in Acts 7. In Acts 7.23, Stephen says in his speech, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. Now, what we learn in these three passages and in some other passages in Acts 7 is that Moses' life is 120 years and it breaks out evenly into three 40-year periods. It's really cool how Moses' life breaks down. Now, how does Moses' life begin? What does his first 40 years look like? Well, Moses is born in Egypt, This is Exodus 1 and 2. The Israelites become enslaved to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet at this time. And the Israelites are growing into a massive nation that Pharaoh is concerned. And so he enslaves the people. And because they continue to have babies, they were very fertile. Pharaoh says we are going to begin to kill the male babies and we're just going to throw them into the Nile. 
So every Hebrew baby boy that is born is supposed to be thrown into the Nile. Now the Nile is massive. This is just an inlet off the Nile. This shot was taken from the Nile in the reeds because this factors into Moses' story. His mother hides him. For three months, he is hidden. And then when she recognizes that she can't hide him anymore, she puts him in a basket. She sticks him in the Nile and she puts them among the reeds. And lo and behold, an attendant to Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, gives Moses to Pharaoh's daughter. And through some unique circumstances that we don't have time to look at this morning, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household under the care of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, we don't have any palaces from the ancient world in Egypt. This is a temple. You get a sense for the grandiose structure that these temples are. But as far as Pharaoh's palace would have been concerned, this is what an artist's rendering looks like of what a Pharaoh's palace would have looked like. Moses grows up in this kind of environment. And he grows up his first 40 years. He is royalty. He is a prince in Egypt. He is Egyptian royalty. These are his first 40 years. Then an event is going to happen. Stephen reckoned, uh, said that in the Acts 7.23 passage, which was when Moses was 40 years old, he came out to visit his people. And we're going to read this story in just a little bit. But Moses ends up killing a man. And as a result of Pharaoh finding out, Moses has to get out of Egypt. And he takes off to a place called Midian, which is about 250 miles away from the heartland of Egypt. And what we find out is that Moses, for these next 40 years, will become a shepherd. Now, we hear that and we go, okay, so he's a shepherd. But understanding the trajectory of Moses' life, you, you're supposed to go, what? He's a shepherd? Are you kidding me? Because if you know anything about shepherding in the ancient world, shepherding was reserved for teenage boys and girls. These are two teenage girls that were leading a flock in the Sinai Desert. They're probably 13, 14 years old. Generally speaking, it's the youngest member of the household who's at least old enough to be able to protect a flock. But generally, we're talking 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, somewhere in there. Here's a picture of a boy that I took in, a picture I took in Israel. He's responsible for that entire flock. He's no more than 10 years old. This is the job of a teenage boy or girl. Moses goes from Egyptian royalty to a shepherd. I think we can all agree this probably felt like a demotion. You are used to having all of your needs met, anything you want, whenever you want it. And Moses spends the next 40 years in a desert with a bunch of sheep and goats. And God comes to him in a burning bush and Moses walks over to the bush and lo and behold, the bush starts talking to Moses. And the bush says, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Verse five, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. So Moses grew up as Egyptian royalty. For the last 40 years, he has been a shepherd of sheep and goats doing the job of a teenage boy and girl, doing this in the Sinai desert. And then God shows up and says, Moses, I want you to head back to Egypt. And I want you to liberate my people. I want you to be a liberator. Now, I don't know about you, but this feels a bit like a 180 to me for what Moses has been doing in life. In fact, it feels like a 180 to Moses as well because immediately Moses goes, you want me to be a liberator? You want me to do what? Like, have you seen my resume? Like, why are you asking me? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world and bring the people out of Egypt? Who am I to do that? He goes from royalty to shepherd and then God goes, I want you to be a liver. Feels a bit like a 180. Feels like it to me. It feels like it to Moses. I would imagine we would all feel that same way. That is, it feels like a 180 until you pick up on the stories we've been given about Moses's life up to this point. Because this is where it gets absolutely fascinating. When Moses is born, we get that birth narrative. The question becomes, do we get any other stories from his first 40 years? And the answer is yes. We get one story that we are told. Check out verse 11 with me. Exodus chapter 2. Check this out says this, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their, your text says, hard labor. They are slaves. Here's what they're doing. They're making bricks. This is the central thing to their slavery is they're making bricks on behalf of the Egyptians to build their cities. Then it says this, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Verse 12, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So the only story we get outside of Moses' birth narrative is the fact that he sees something going on, he responds to it, and as a result of that, he has to flee. That essentially ties up his first 40 years. What happens in those next 40 years? Well, first of all, he's come to the age, the, the age of a slave, an Israelite slave, and then this launches him into these next 40 years. We pick up here in verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flocks. Flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, get this, an Egyptian Moses is Egyptian through and through. He is mistaken for an Egyptian, even though he's a Hebrew. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he, Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Pretty good deal. You water a flock, you get married. All right. So then it says this, Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. So the first story that we get of Moses's second 40 years, which the only other story we get is the calling that we've already looked at. But we get this story where Moses comes to a well. This is a well that's in the Sinai. Moses would have gone on the eastern side of the Red Sea, uh, but it would have been a well, maybe something similar to this, where you draw the water out. It's protected. It's been built up, but they pull water out and they put it in watering troughs for, for flocks to be able to drink. And these girls, who of course are shepherding a flock, are there and there are some other shepherds that essentially bully them. And Moses comes to their aid. He comes to their rescue. And now he does this for shepherd girls. So when God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to rescue the Israelites. And what Moses doesn't know is that he's going to eventually take them through the sea. God is saying to Moses, I want you to be a liberator of the Israelites. And when we step back, immediately looking at the story, we go, man, this feels like a total 180. And you look at the other stories, you go, wait a minute, this isn't a 180. From Moses' first 40 years, he sees a slave being beaten. Moses sees an injustice And he rises up and he deals with the injustice. Now, granted, he goes way too far. He kills an Egyptian, but you can see that passion. You can see that propensity there to stand on the side of justice. And then he ends up at a well in Midian and he sees an injustice going on with these female shepherds who are being abused by these other shepherds. And Moses goes, I will not stand for that injustice. And he steps in. And then God comes to Moses and he says, 
I have seen the injustice in Egypt. And Moses, you're my man to go deal with the injustice in Egypt because your entire life you have demonstrated a propensity towards justice. Here's what's so cool about what happens here. God wasn't calling Moses to be something he was not. He was calling Moses to be more of who he has been all along. Moses is like, who am I? God goes, why not you? Look at who you are. See, not only is God helping Moses to see like this has been your life. This has been your storyline. This is how you've responded in moments of injustice. We also see this in the text around Moses' name itself. Moses in Hebrew is Moshe. Let me hear you say Moshe. Moshe is a word that means to draw out. Now, here's what's cool about how Moses gets this name. You all know if you've been any time here at Central that whenever we talk about a name, a name is significant. It is your identity. It is your destiny. Parents would spend a a considerable amount of time praying to God, asking God, what is the name of my child supposed to be? Because your prayer was that your child would live into their identity of who you believe God was calling them to be. Now, sometimes people got names around circumstances around their birth, which is how Moses got his name, but there is also a destiny. There is an identity component to his name as well. Moses gets his name because in this first 40 years, at his birth, he is drawn out of the Nile. This is how he gets the name Moshe, is because he is drawn out of the water. He is drawn out of the Nile. And then Moses' second year, second 40 years begins with being at a well in Midian where he draws out water for the shepherd girls. They even use that language. He drew out water for us. And then God comes to Moses, and Moses doesn't know this yet, but when God calls Moses to be a liberator, he's going to eventually call Moses to draw the Israelites through the sea. Moses doesn't know this yet, but when God calls him into this new path, he's not calling him to be something he's not. He's calling him to be who he has been all along. That this is just the natural progression of the path that God has had him on all along. And here's the really cool news for you and I this morning, is that when we look in on Moses' story, Moses' story is our story. Because when God calls us to a new path, he doesn't call us to be something we're not. He calls us to be more of who we have been all along. Growing up, I had a childhood friend who was my best friend growing up. Uh, His name is Daniel, and I'll show you a picture. This is from my wedding, and I got to stand with Daniel in his wedding, and he stood with me in my wedding. Daniel and I growing up, we were inseparable. We were together all the time, and as I was growing up, my big thing was sports. I loved sports. Daniel's thing was airplanes. He loved 
airplanes. He was always drawing airplanes. He had the model airplanes hanging from every crevice of his room. He had the metal airplanes lined up all around his dresser. And he was always, always playing with airplanes and constructing new airplanes and drawing these airplanes. It was like I was sports, he was planes. And Daniel's desire around planes led him to always want to be a fighter pilot. And I remember that even Daniel was so into flying that even at a young age, his dad would let him watch Top Gun, but he had to watch the whole thing muted. (laughs) But he just loved airplanes. And when Daniel was in sixth grade, his dad, who was a pastor, they moved about 50 minutes away, and Daniel had to go to a new school, but he missed our hometown so much we missed being together so much that his senior year of high school he drove 50 minutes one way to come to high school and because it was such a long drive generally three times a week maybe four times a week he stayed at my house we were like roommates in high school and Daniel wanted to be a fighter pilot he knew exactly he wanted to go to the air force he wanted to be a fighter pilot and then Daniel received the devastating news to him that he didn't have the eyes to be able to pursue his dream And he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. And I went to Cornerstone. He came to Cornerstone. He changed his major like four times. Just did not know what he wanted to do. Finally, it just got way too expensive when you don't know what you want to do and you've got lots of majors going on. It can get really uh, costly. So Daniel left Cornerstone. And then Daniel goes, you know what? I I think I know what I want to do. If I can't fly planes, I want to work on airplanes. So he went to Western Michigan to get a degree in working on airplanes. And he did that for a while being at Western Michigan and finally just left because it wasn't what he wanted to do. And for years, he just kind of bounced around from a job to a job, not really knowing. And about three years, four years after we, we graduated college, or when I graduated college, which was in 02, so sometime in 05, 06, he called me up. Uh, in fact, it was 06, and he said, Brad... Uh, let's go have dinner. He was living in Granville. And uh, so Shallon and I and Dan and his wife, Kate, we went to the Outback in Granville. I mean, if you're going to have a good conversation, go to the Outback, right? So we're there, and Dan just says, uh, I know what I want to do with my life. And I go, really? What's that? He goes, um, I want to I go to art school because I want to be a graphic designer. And I go, Really? He goes, yeah. He said, like, this, this thing just started welling up in me, and I taught myself Photoshop, and I've just been kind of tinkering around with some stuff, and I've put together a portfolio that I want to submit to different art schools. And he pulls out this big, you know, sketch pad, and he opens it up, and he shows me a bunch of drawings, and he, and he shows me one thing. He says, yeah. He said, I have to kind of do some mock things. And so I kind of just said, well, if I was going to do a campaign for Tupperware, this is what I would do. He came up with this rediscover fresh Tupperware campaign. And I looked at it and me, I'm like, Daniel, this is a clean design. This is great. There's life to this. I said, and by the way, I've never thought about ever wanting to buy Tupperware. But after this, I want to buy me some Tupperware. (laughs) I said, this is amazing. And he showed me all these other things. And I remember saying at the table, I remember exactly where we were sitting in the outback, in the booth where I was sitting, and I turned to Daniel and I said, dude, this feels like a total 180 from being a fighter pilot. He goes, yeah, I know. And we left that day, and about two weeks later, it dawned on me, and I called him up, and I was like, Daniel, let's talk about this a little bit more. I said, something struck me. 
I said, our entire lives, we thought that God was preparing you to be a fire pilot. But as a kid, you were always drawing and designing things. God wasn't designing you to be a pilot. He was crafting you to be a designer. And he's actually called you to be more of who you have been all along. And we both marveled at how God had worked in his story, about how God had threaded this theme throughout, that it wasn't until this epic moment of calling that he began to connect the dots back in the story. Uh, Daniel ended up going on to one of our top art design schools in the country. He went to uh, Chicago and got in at an amazing marketing agency, did incredible work, and then he went to L.A. Uh, This is Daniel now. Ladies, yes, he is married, all right? Uh, and now he is at the most, one of the most reputable marketing firms in all of Texas, in Dallas, and these are just some of the people that he works with on a weekly basis. And apparently he only works with you if in your logo you have red and blue, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Daniel's doing amazing work. But the reality is that when God calls us to a new path, he doesn't call us to be something we're not. He calls us to be more of who we've been all along. This is the comfort that Shallon and I have right now. We don't know what this next path is going to be. We haven't had any great revelations around what's going to unfold. Uh, It will be around teaching. I know that in some capacity. That's the passion God has given me. That's the gift God has given me. That's how I've seen it play out throughout my life. But the interesting thing was is that um, in 2005, God called me from a job working in the business world to come to seminary. And I thought, man, this is a 180 until I started to see the threads. And now as God calls us into this next phase, we don't know what it's going to look like. But what we do know is that this is how God works. That God trains us throughout our lives to do whatever he's asking us to do. And that whenever God calls us to a new path, we'll become more of who we've been. Everything we've done leading up to that moment is preparing you for that next phase of the journey that God is calling you to. And by the way, calling to a new path doesn't have to be this big, massive calling. Some callings are big. Some callings require you to change your occupation, to change your location, to go somewhere else. Some callings are not as big in that way, but they're no less, you know, no less significant. No calling is insignificant. God may say, hey, I'm calling you to invest in this child's life to mentor them for one hour a week. Or God's calling you to do this thing over here that's going to require more time and more energy. And sometimes God calls you to do something really big that's going to require an entire life change. And we may sit back and go, God, I don't know if, I'm, if I can do that like I've been, been wired for that. And God goes, no, 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 I'm calling you into this. And by the way, those callings, may feel a bit nebulous. You may just know from the, like down deep in, in your bones you're supposed to do something. You may not have language for it. You may not be able to articulate the plan going forward. You may not even be able to give a good case for why you're doing what you're doing. But this is how God often works. This is how God worked for us. Is that all of a sudden this thing called Nashville, a place that I had never been before, just started popping in conversation like 10 times in two weeks. And all of a sudden there was just this deep impression we had from God that God was saying, I'm calling you into something in Nashville. 
and it has just been weird and it's been bizarre. And it's like we spent time talking to our mentors and saying, man, we feel like God is doing this. And after we laid out all the crazy things that had happened in a two-week time, every one of my mentors said, you gotta go. This is what God is doing. And we spent time in prayer and discernment. But it all began with just this deep sense that God was doing something and we didn't quite have the language for it and we don't have everything figured out. But that is often how God speaks to us. And if you just know that you're supposed to do something, God's just saying, listen, you may be fearful of it. It may be weird. It may feel like a 180. But here's the truth of the matter. You are not going to be somebody different. You may have to step into a new role. You may need to learn a few new skills. You may need to modify this. You may need to grow up in this. But you're going to be who God has called you to be all along. That's the hope you have in those moments when God calls our name twice. Now, here's another facet of God calling our name twice that I find absolutely riveting in the story. And that's this. Basic observation, but I think it's massive. It's this. Moses was 80 years old when God called him to a new path. That Moses was 80 years old when God called him into his most significant task in life. Friends, 80 years old. We've said this before, and I know Craig will continue to say this. God does not believe in retirement. You can retire from your job, but you do not retire from the kingdom of God. That for those of you who are in your 50s, you're in your 60s, you're in your 70s. Some of you are in your 70s right now, and God's probably looking at you, and God may be saying, guess what? We're just getting warmed up. We have in our mentality, you get to 60 and you start kind of tailing out. You start going downhill. God goes, no, 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 no. Like I may be working on your life. I may have been working for 40, 50, 60 years to get you to this moment to ask you to do what I'm going to ask you to do next. That God is working in all of our stories Because God is a God who calls. God is a God who calls us to new paths. God is a God who calls our name twice. Big callings, small callings, and callings all in between. And God wants to know, will we keep our ears open to what God may be doing in our life? And maybe some of you are in a place right now where you go, man, I hope God calls me to a new path because I really don't like the path that I'm in right now. Like, I don't like the job I'm in. I'm not, I don't like the place that I'm in. And maybe you, like Moses, feel like you have been demoted in some way. Remember, Moses goes from royalty to shepherd. And we said, man, kind of feels like a demotion. But what if what feels like a demotion to us is actually a promotion in God's eyes? See, when Moses was called to his greatest task in life. What Moses didn't realize is that God was going to have Moses lead a bunch of people in the Sinai Desert for 40 years. And when God called Moses to be a shepherd, 
God goes, Moses, you don't understand it now. But if you can't learn to lead a bunch of sheep and goats in the Sinai desert for 40 years, there is no shot you're going to do this with human beings. Moses, I'm calling you into this new phase because you were faithful right where I put you. You may be in a place right now where you feel like you've been demoted, but in God's eyes, it may be a promotion. God may be doing something in your story right now, shaping you, molding you, helping you grow in these skills and abilities that he needs from you in order to call you to the next path. And I don't believe God would have called Moses if Moses hadn't been faithful learning those sheep and goats because the human beings, they were gonna be a whole nother animal. Literally. Be faithful where you find yourself today. Because God doesn't waste any aspect of our life. God can work in anything. I know for some of us, we sit here today, and maybe God is speaking to you in some way, or has been for some time. In fact, just two days ago, I was having a conversation with a gentleman who is on one of our military forts here in the United States. And he's got this amazing job. He's crafted it. He's got no worry about job security. It's his role till he dies. And he said to me, he said, Brad, I love what I get to do. It is a stable, stable job. He said, but it's felt like for months something has been going on inside of me and I feel like I need to make a change. But it scares the daylights out of me. This is what I love about the story when Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the people out? And God's first words to Moses were these. I will be with you. But God, I've got a stable job. I don't know if I can do this. Yeah, yeah, I'll be with you. But, but God, I don't know if I have the skills to do what you are asking me to do. Yeah, I'll be with you. God, I don't know how we're going to pay for that. Do you realize how expensive that is? Yeah. Yeah, I'll be with you. God, that is dangerous and that is risky. Yeah, I'll be with you. Friends, just know that whenever God calls our name twice, it will always be followed by the words, I will be with you. And my ongoing prayer for this community is that we would be a community that would never close our ears to the voice of God. Because second only to the gift of Jesus Christ and salvation, eternal life that begins now, second only to that gift, the greatest gift that we've been given is an ability to join God in what he is doing in redeeming a broken world.
that since the beginning of humanity, God has demonstrated time and time and time again that he wants to partner with us to bring about his purposes in the world. And the moment we close our ears to what God is asking us to do, the moment we become irrelevant in this world. And we are at a juncture in our world where the church needs to continually step up to hear the voice of God speaking and to have the courage to say, God, we are joining you in what you are doing because there is a brokenness in our world that needs to be repaired. And friends, this is what I have loved most about being with you these last four years is that from the moment you welcomed Shallon and I into this community, we were with family. We were with people who said, hey, let's go. Let's do whatever needs to be done. And we've been through a lot as a family. We've had ups, we've had downs. God is doing an amazing thing in what he is doing. And the thing that I have always loved most is that here is a broad spectrum community from ages that have the biggest age gap that I have seen in any church I have ever been part of and seeing people come together to say, this is not about us. This is about God and God's story. And we want to be a people who are open to whatever God is doing, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, however sacrificial, however painful it is, because we know if God is investing in us, then God is going to do something amazing through us. And I pray that you never close your ears, that you don't close your ears if you are 15 years old, that you don't close your ears if you're 85 years old, because this is a God who delights to partner with humanity. This is a God who wants to continually do great things in this community. And if our ears are open, we will never, ever become irrelevant to Holland, to West Michigan, to our world because God is going to continue to work powerfully through you. And I will tell you that from a ministry perspective, journeying with you these four years has been the greatest joy that I've experienced in ministry. To be able to be with you, to lead with you, to walk with you in what God has done and what God is going to continue to do has been an absolute utter joy. You have helped shape me to do whatever God is calling us to do next. And I believe God is continuing to shape you for what God has for you going forward as well. And on behalf of my wife and I and our family, thank you for welcoming us into your family. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to journey with you for these last four years. I know this isn't goodbye forever, but in this capacity it is. And on behalf of my family and I, thank you. We love you and we are going to miss you dearly. Thank you.
how do you follow that, huh? Um, not usually speechless, but um, a number of years ago, um, God placed me in a ministry where a third of the congregation turned over every year, not because I was doing anything wrong, uh, but because they were expats working for mostly American companies around the world, and the company would come in, and in one moment's notice, they would say, okay, you're moving, and they would move. As a pastor, that gave me some challenges. Financially, it was really tough for us to to plan long-term because you'd never know who would be there. But also in terms of ministry, um, somebody says the word and they're gone. It really is that simple. And so what we did is we developed this, uh, what we call a rite of passage, where when someone who's involved in our church uh, would be called on, we used to gather them at the front at the end of of the service, and we used to pray for them because we realized more than any thing else, and that's really where this idea of God evaluates the church, not by how many people we seat, but by how many people we send, really started to begin to get birthed in my heart. We used to gather them at the front. As a congregation, we used to pray for them, and as the, the service ended, they used to walk out from our midst, symbolizing the fact that the church never stays still, that we're always on a journey, and that these people are His. A voice has been spoken not by the leader of a business, but by God himself who has somewhere else for them to go. So what I want to do is establish a new tradition today with Brad and Shannon. And it goes without saying that I've enjoyed ministering with you. It's been a delight. I realize that that will change, but we still minister together for the same cause. We rejoice together with you. We'll support you. We will invite you back. Um, So this isn't the last time that he will speak here. Um, And uh, just, Brad, thanks for everything that you've done. Uh, Once again, can we show our appreciation for you? Could you just uh, go down there for me? So I'm going to just simply pray a prayer of blessing over them as they leave. And as they leave, they will be outside in the atrium here uh, just to greet any of you that uh, want to say goodbye to them. You obviously know how to connect with them, walkingthetext.com. You can connect with them that way. But uh, Brad and Shannon, it's been a privilege for us as your faith family to journey together with you in this season. And so we commit you, we commit your family to the God who called you here. We rejoice that the God who called you is the God who calls you again. And we as your faith family just welcome you into this new sphere. Do just go into God's blessing. Amen. Friends and family of Central, as Brad has just expressed for us, the, the importance of going where God calls. Leave this place, go where God has called you, and be a blessing to the people that God has sent you to. Go in grace, go in peace. We'll see you next week. God bless. <laughs>